Well, over the next uh, couple of weeks, we're going to encounter what uh, some consider some of the most debated and difficult passages in Scripture. But I hope what you'll find as we look at these together is that they're really easier to understand within the context of the letter as a whole. It's a good example of how important it is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Because if we were to pull this passage that we'll look at this morning out by itself and try to make sense of it, it's really hard to understand. We also run the risk when we do something like that of making it say something that the author never intended. And so it's real important to look at this within the context of what has already been written. A lot of times it's like trying to make sense of those highly magnified pictures. Have you seen those before? It can be, for example, a tennis ball, highly magnified. It looks like a a white meandering path through a a field of green grass. That's what it looks like. And then you pull back the camera and all of a sudden you see, oh, well, that's a tennis ball. That's simple, right? Well, in my mind, that's what context does to interpretation in Scripture. It pulls back the camera to bring into clarity what is very hard to see when highly magnified in and of itself. But in the context of Scripture as a whole, you begin to understand, oh, now that's what makes sense. I understand. And I also want you to remember that this passage, although it may be difficult for us at some level, it would have been easily understood to the reader of this letter. We just happen to be so far removed from from culture and language, very often it's difficult for us to appreciate exactly what the author intended. So what I want us to do this morning is kind of begin by pulling that lens back. Because I think we will understand our passage this morning with that big field of view of what we've looked at so far. You'll remember that John is writing this letter to a church that has been fractured by the divisive doctrines of false teachers. And you remember those false doctrines centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now they claimed to have fellowship with God. They believed that they were righteous in His eyes. They would even say that they expected to have eternal life. They just didn't believe that they had to go through Jesus to get there. And so the central theme of John's letter is building a case for Christ. Establishing the truth that that fellowship with God is dependent upon a relationship with Jesus Christ. And this faith in Christ is the only way that anyone has eternal life. Several times in his letter, if you'll remember as we've gone through this, he's made comments like, whoever believes, or by this we know, or if we say. And then each time he goes on to give an attribute that's important to recognize about who Jesus is. Things like believe in it, Jesus is the Christ the Messiah, the Anointed One sent by God, who came in the flesh, that He was fully man, but He was also one with God, so He was fully God, sent by the Father to be the Savior of the world. And His death on the cross was the atonement that was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. John has made all those things very clear throughout the letter so far. These are the things that we must believe about Jesus to have fellowship with God and to receive the gift of eternal life. 
And although John is building this case that he has essentially presented to us in his letter so far on his eyewitness account, you remember that's how he began the letter, right? The things that we have seen, speaking of him and the other apostles, the things that we have heard, the things that we have touched with our own hands, we proclaim to you. But now it's as if John turns to the reader and says, but don't just take my word for it. You decide for yourself. Because God has validated everything I've told you to be true. And then like a lawyer, he calls forth three witnesses to the stand to provide a testimony that validates the life and purpose of Christ. And in a sense, we are the jury. And and he's turning to us and he's saying, examine the evidence that God has given you and you decide who Jesus is. That's the heart of our passage this morning. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. It is clear, God, that you don't want us to miss this. That over and over in Scripture, you in different ways, by different means, communicate the truth of the gospel of salvation found through faith in Jesus Christ. You have built a case for us to see that is indefensible. It is ultimately clear that salvation is found through faith in Christ alone. So Father, as we look at this passage that for many has been very difficult for a lot of years, that there would be a sense of clarity because of the work of your Spirit in our hearts that gives us eyes to see and and, and ears to hear and hearts that understand the intent and purpose of what you inspired John to write in this letter to the church. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would, go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 5. We'll pick up where we left off last. I'll begin reading in verse 6. And as I do, I want you to kind of imagine in your mind a courtroom scene. Okay? And John is calling forth three witnesses to the stand. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness. Because the Spirit is the truth. For these are the three witnesses. The Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three are in agreement. As with any trial, a case is often decided based on the credibility of the witnesses. In fact, a good attorney is going to make sure that that's what he spends his time doing is finding good credible witnesses to build this case because that judge nor that jury is just going to take his word for it. He's got to do something to prove that what he is saying is true. And God's law actually requires the same thing. You don't need to turn there, but just let me show you. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. God is speaking to Moses to tell him how to carry out uh, times of decision. He says this, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. And so John is knowing that truth. 
He has that background and he's bringing forth his witnesses given by God to validate the truth of Christ. The water, the blood, and the Spirit. Three witnesses. I want you to think about something here as we consider these three witnesses. Remember, John is countering the arguments of the false teachers. They have presented their case and then they left the church. You remember? And their claims have created all this confusion. And so I believe what John is doing here is speaking specifically against those points being made by the false teachers. And so although we may feel like he kind of pulled these three out of the air, I am convinced that he is speaking directly to the testimony of the false teachers and what he wants this church to understand about what they said and what is true. Let's begin with the water. I want you to notice that in our passage, John says, Jesus came by water and not with water only. Now, the way he says that leads me to believe that the uh, false teachers might have actually agreed with this witness. They might have said, yes, we agree that he came by water. And so John clarifies, but water is not the only witness. Because of this, I think John is very likely looking to a witness that occurred at the baptism of Jesus. Now there's other ideas of what might be in mind here. Some suggest that if you uh, remember Jesus being crucified on the cross and they took the spear, the soldier took the spear and it pierced through Jesus' side and water and blood flowed out. But John specifically says that Jesus came by this by water, that there was a witness that took place. And I believe that he's referring to the baptism of Jesus. If you would, turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, and let's just look at that together. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. The water is a witness, and it points back perhaps to what took place on this day. Chapter 3, verse 16, Matthew writes, And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. See, the baptism of Jesus is when God gave a witness that Jesus was His Son. And all this took place at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus when He would now begin to to reveal His purpose in coming. We know from history that there were those like Serentius. We talked about this man before. He was a, a contemporary of John who would look at this same event and say, yes, the baptism was important, but not because Jesus was God incarnate. Instead, he would argue that Jesus was just a man, just like you and I. And at the baptism, it was important because somehow God indwelled this man and gave him a purpose of which was fulfilled before he ever went to the cross. They, like many others in Jesus' day, could not wrap their heads around this idea that Jesus would send a Savior who would die on a cross. It just didn't make sense. But it didn't make sense 
Because they were not letting Scripture speak for itself. If you'll remember, I'll just read this one to you. You don't need to turn there. You can write it down. It's Luke chapter 24, verse 25. This is after the death, burial, and now resurrection of Jesus. And He has appeared to to others before ascending into heaven. And in one of those, this is what He says to them. O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. See, these people were confused because the tomb was empty. Jesus was gone and they were trying to figure out what just happened. Jesus says, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things to enter into His glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scripture. He says it's there. It has always been there. But a a crucified Savior was just not something that they could grasp. But it was always the plan of God. And So although the false teachers might agree that the baptism of Jesus was important, in their mind, it ended there. And so John will counter their argument and suggest that it could only be understood, that the the baptism of Christ only made sense in the context of the cross. Jesus came by water and by blood, it says in our passage. Not by water only, but with blood, by water and by blood. He, He repeats it several times to make sure that we don't miss that point. You see, the baptism of Jesus began a mission that could only be fulfilled at the cross. Because only the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Now we know from what we've learned so far in this letter that the false teachers didn't have a big issue with sin. Because they believed that they had fellowship with God. That they loved God and somehow their good intentions were sufficient to overcome this problem of sin. And you can understand how the cross is not all that important if sin is not all that big of a deal. And I think we have that same opinion pervasive in our world today. If you ask the average person what it takes to get into heaven, they're going to tell you, faith in God and live a good moral life. John would say, that's not enough. He says there's more. And he brings to the witness stand the blood to validate the testimony of Jesus. You may remember at the Last Supper, Jesus takes the cup. And when he does, he explains that this cup represents his blood, which is a new covenant. See, the old covenant used blood as well, but those sacrifices were a reminder of sin. And what Jesus is saying is something new happens with my blood, because it's not just a reminder of sin, it is the means for the forgiveness of sin. And so the new replaces the old. There's a passage in Hebrews that makes this clear. Learn, look at Hebrews chapter 10. Beautiful passage that will explain in great detail what we just said was true. Let's let Scripture speak for itself. Hebrews chapter 10. Let's begin in verse 1. Listen to what is being said here. It says, For the law, 
since it is only a shadow of good things to come. Now what he's saying there is the law is important, but it's pointing to something of even greater importance. He goes on and says, for the law pointing to good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshippers, having been cleansed, would no longer have the consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, here it is, there is a reminder of sins year by year. That's the purpose of the Old Covenant. We are a sinful people. And God established the sacrifices to be a reminder year by year that sin is the problem. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, when He came, comes into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for Me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast taken no pleasure. Then He said, Then I said, Behold, I have come. And the roll of the book is written of Me to do Thy will, O God. And after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast not desired, for thou hast, not, for thou hast taken pleasure, not taken pleasure in them for which were offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. Speaking of Jesus, he takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But He, Jesus, offering one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time onward until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. For by one Offering, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The barrier that prevents fellowship with God is the issue of sin. And the only sacrifice sufficient for the forgiveness of sins is the blood of Jesus Christ. Sin is a big deal. And the blood of the cross is the witness to the world that Jesus came to be the only sacrifice sufficient to forgive sins. The baptism was a witness that Jesus was God's sin, God's Son, sent with a mission, with divine authority. That blood is the witness that His mission was complete on the cross. And the death of Jesus Christ satisfied the righteous judgment of God. Jesus took upon Himself what we deserved. And only His blood cleanses us from sin. And then John brings one more witness to the stand. Let's look at that again, verse 7. And it is the Spirit who bears witness. Because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. John waits to the last to bring the best. 
the witness of the Spirit. Because everyone knows that when the Spirit of God is present, it is a witness to the truth of God. And so whenever you see the Spirit, you know that God is revealing something that is true. And that Spirit was a powerful witness in the life of Christ every time you turn around. It started in the beginning. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. This was not a normal birth. There was not a man and a woman who had union. This was a miracle of God. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then He was led by the Holy Spirit because you remember when He was just 12 years old, He sat in the temple with with men of 60, 70 years old who had been studying the Scripture all their life and He was teaching them by the work of the Spirit within Him. He performed miracles by the Spirit, making the blind to see, the lame to walk, the dead to rise. The Spirit of God was upon Jesus in everything He said and everything He did. The Spirit of God is a witness to the truth of God being lived out in the life of Christ. John has called forth three witnesses. And they all agree. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, sent by the authority of God to declare the truth of God in order to establish peace with God through the blood of the cross. And then John turns to you and I after having presented these witnesses that he has now brought to the stand that that God has validated And he says, now, what's your decision? What do you believe to be true? Look at verse 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that He has borne witness concerning His Son. Those were just presented. It goes on in verse 10 and says, the one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his son. As you think about this, I want you to consider all the things that you do on a given day based on faith in fallen man. Okay? If you go and deposit money in a bank, you have faith that that money that you're giving to somebody that you don't even know or see is being taken care of. Right? You take medications that are prescribed by a doctor who you have faith is doing this for your good. Every time you get into a car, you have faith in the engineers who designed it that it will do what they said it would do. Every day, you make a myriad of decisions based on faith in other people. And John says, how much more important is it for you to base an eternally significant decision on faith in God alone. Jesus Himself said, we need to look at the testimony that God has provided. Turn, if you will, to to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. This idea of having witnesses to prove what you're saying is true is significant in Scripture. Okay? So we've seen John bring forth his witnesses and, and Jesus even speaks to this same thing in his life and ministry. Look at John chapter 5, verse 31. This is Jesus speaking and He says, 
If I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. Why? Because the law requires something more than one person, right? So he goes on to say, There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness of the truth. He's speaking of John the Baptist. But the witness which I receive is not from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a lamp that was burning and shining and you were willing to rejoice for a while in His light. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, He has borne witness of me. You have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His form. And you do not have His word abiding in you. For you do not believe Him who sent me. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of Me. See, the Apostle John has given three witnesses. And Jesus just gave three more. So now we have six. There's the testimony of John the Baptist. That's who he was speaking about. Everybody recognized him as a prophet. And he's telling them, what did he say about me? He said, Behold, the Lamb of God, speaking of Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. There's the testimony of the miracles. Those were the works he was speaking of that he had been performing and would continue to perform before them. His power over nature. His power over disease. His power over death. All these bear witness that what he does, he does by the authority of God. And then there's scriptures. He says in that last verse, and these bear witness of me. He's speaking of the testimony of Scripture. It all points to Jesus Christ. So now we have six witnesses that have taken the stand. His baptism, his blood, the Spirit, John the Baptist, the evidence of his miracles, the fulfillment of Scripture. And if that's not enough, there's still one more. How about His resurrection? Seven. And all this evidence demands a verdict. What do you believe to be true? It's like the judge stands up after all the deliberations have been done and he says to the jury, what? What say you? That's the question John is asking. And he goes on to say, if you don't believe the witness of God, then you need to know that by denying this witness, this testimony of Jesus, you are calling God a liar. We are such proud people. We are so skeptical by nature. Always wanting more proof than we already have. But we need to understand that God is not in the business of giving more proof to proud sinners. Because He knows that it will never be enough. Just show me, Lord, and and I'll believe. No, you won't. Now, you might believe in something if it matches up to what you expect to be true. Maybe a conquering king or a divine healer or a wealthy benefactor. But we either accept Jesus based on God's terms or we deny Him and make God out to be a liar. Because the witness of God 
has been made evident in the life of Christ. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He alone is our salvation. There is no other name under heaven given unto men by what which we must be saved. John says, the one who believes this is true has the witness in himself. And he's speaking, of course, to the witness of the Spirit who gives us an understanding of what is true, makes our eyes to see and our hearts to believe. He transforms our mind. He makes us sensitive to His Word. He puts new desires into our heart. Through faith in Christ, we know that we become a new creation because of the work of the Spirit. We are dead to the controlling power of sin and made alive to God in Christ. We don't need more proof because as Christians, we live by faith not by sight. And all the proof we need has been shown to us in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. His death, His burial, His resurrection. This is what gives us the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not yet seen. Now look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. And the witness is this that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. God is the righteous judge, and this is His verdict for those who believe. You have been given the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And I think it's important for for us to understand that this promise, this gift of eternal life is a present day reality. He says, he who has the Son has the life. That is a present tense reality. We need to be careful about living for something yet future when so many of the benefits of what God has promised to us are available right here, right now. We have fellowship with God. We have victory over sin. We have the mind of Christ. We have the Word of God. We may be poor, but we can be rich in Christ. Our our body may be failing in sickness and disease. We may be outwardly decaying, but inwardly, the Scripture says, we are being renewed day by day. We've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, including all we need for life and for godliness. Eternal life begins the moment you believe. Everything that we experience in heaven is a tremendous upgrade to what we now know to be true. Now that being said, I know there are those in our body who are doing good just to keep their head above water. There are some who have lost jobs. There are those who have lost loved ones. There are those who are weary from chronic illness. There are those whose hearts are broken because of children who have gone astray. And so eternal life for some feels like some far-off dream more than it does the present-day reality. And my heart breaks for you. 
but I want to remind you of something. Your life is not found, doesn't find its purpose in your circumstances. It finds its purpose in your relationship with God through Christ. He who has the Son has the life. Jesus said, these are his words, these things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. He he confronts the reality that in the world you're going to have tribulation. But he says, take courage. Why? Because I have overcome the world. And you may remember that passage that we looked at last week in chapter 5, verse 4. It says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. See, our faith informs us of what Christ has done, that His victory becomes our hope. And so instead of looking at our circumstances to determine where we find hope, we look to Jesus Christ. And whatever we see in Him, we need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is true for us. We're often told in the midst of difficult circumstances that God will never give us more than we can bear. That doesn't help me very much because I've been in some dark places and it sure felt like it was more than I could bear. So let me suggest something different. God will never give us anything that's more than He can bear. That's a big difference. Because if it's up to me to hold up, that's not good news. But if it's up to Him, that's good news. Turn, if you will, to 2 Corinthians. We'll finish with this. Chapter 1, verse 3. These are familiar words that are often used to encourage people during difficult times, and I think they should be. I want you to look at them with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with that same comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This is important truth. And we need to believe that God does comfort those who are hurting and and that we are called to come around them as well, just as the song proclaimed this morning. But this is not saying just trust in God and everything gets better. Because there's a context to that message. Look at verse 8. It says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. I think what he's saying here is this was more than we could handle. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. What is true in Christ is true for you who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us from whatever circumstances we are in. He on whom we have set our hope, He will yet deliver us. You also in helping us through your prayers that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many hope is not in our circumstances because they can spin out of control. Our hope is in our faith in God and His ability 
to handle whatever it is we are going through. And like the death of a Savior on a cross, which makes no sense from the world's point of view, God is able to redeem even the harshest punishment for the highest good of mankind. I want you to know that even in the darkest times, His love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on you. Sound familiar? There's a song that proclaims that, right? And we're going to sing that here in a minute. But before we do, I want to tell you what's going to happen next. This morning we've been talking about a witness, haven't we? The witness of who Christ is. And obviously that's important to God because all throughout Scripture He talks about this witness and the importance of that. And one of the things that He ordained for the church to carry out, two ordinances, one we celebrated last week, which is communion, one we will celebrate this morning, which is baptism. And we need to understand that baptism was given to the church as a witness. You're going to hear that proclaimed by the people who are going to stand up here. And they are going to profess their testimony in Jesus Christ and their belief that everything that we just said is true. But there's also another witness because the act of baptism gives us a picture that's intended to tell us something about what is true. Being put under the water is figurative of what happens when Jesus was buried inside the grave. Being pulled out of that water represents His resurrection when He was brought to life. And so when you see that imagery, you see these people being united with Christ in that sin-conquering death and then being raised up to walk in a newness of life. It is a witness. But it's also a witness of the church. The reason that we don't do this somewhere where these people here aren't involved is because you are supposed to be here. Because you are a part of that witness. You are seeing what's being proclaimed and you are saying and rejoicing that is true. And you are standing together with those who are making that profession and you are saying, we are committed ourselves to stand together in the truth of who Christ is in that proclamation that we are called to give to the world. This is our witness. And that's what we proclaim together with baptism. So let me pray for us. And as I do, if you are part of the ceremony this morning of baptism, you can go to your respective room, guys on this side, girls on this side. And then after I finish praying, the song's going to come up. I put words on there. Many of you know it. I would encourage you to sing it like you mean it because that's a great truth to proclaim. Let me pray. God, thank you for the time this morning to bear witness to your testimony of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ who came to die for our sins. Knowing that Your blood is the only forgiveness that we have. Sin is a big deal because it separates us from fellowship with God. And so if we want to know that we have eternal life, we have to come to the cross, bear witness to the blood, the ministry and testimony of Jesus Christ and proclaim that it is true. So Father, in the hearts of people here this morning, I ask that Your Spirit of truth would convict their hearts in a way that affirms in the deepest part of their soul that this is right. 
that this is true, that this is from God, and that they would commit and affirm and proclaim this truth to all the world. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.